Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. We have a special treat for you today. We are going to be talking about a, and by we, I mean a larger we, which I'll get to in a moment, about a a very important Egyptian fairy tale called the Shipwreck Sailor. This tale involves a great storm and then a shipwreck and a man who washes up on a beach of an island that he does not know. His whole crew is dead. And he has to wander through this place where he meets a ginormous snake man who is also living alone and has lost his whole family. And the story progresses from there. It's a story that is near and dear to Egyptological hearts because it's one of the first stories that you read when you're learning Middle Egyptian. So if you enroll in a class to learn hieroglyphs, as we call them, you're learning the classical form of the Egyptian language, the the Egyptian of the Middle Kingdom. And, and the early New Kingdom. And this tale, the tale of the shipwrecked sailor, is one of the simplest grammars, the clearest texts, the clearest vocabulary, even though there's one section where there's all this vegetation and I had to learn about notched figs and unnotched figs and it's, <laughs> it's complicated. But it's going to be fun because this is a rescued episode from Eric Wells' Guide to Ancient Egypt. And I know many of you who listen to this podcast also listen to Eric Wells' podcast back in the day. This is some years ago that Eric Wells produced this podcast. He does not anymore. But his wife, Amber Wells, has rescued these episodes from hard drives of old. And Amber, why don't you tell us how you did that and what the process was? It was a lost weekend. This was about 10 years ago when Eric was producing Eric's Guide to Ancient Egypt. And so I pulled out the dust-covered laptop. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And the hard drive kept trying to die on me. I managed to salvage these files. And when we go into the recording, you're going to hear Eric's original theme music and everything, his introduction to the episodes. Essentially... He has been kind enough to grant us his former library, and we've picked this episode on the Shipwreck Sailor to be the first one that we drop into the afterlives of ancient Egypt feed because it's a great story, as you just discussed. But also, people really liked Eric's Guide to Ancient Egypt, and life happened, and after a couple of years, he stopped producing episodes, but people still ask about it. From time to time, a lot of people really enjoyed it. And so we asked if he would be kind enough to let us put some of his episodes from back in the day uh, into the Afterlives feed. Well, it's funny because I was on his podcast so many times because we're both at UCLA. I have actually gotten dozens of emails from people saying, where is Eric Wells? Is he okay? Where, when is his podcast coming back and what the hell? And then I write back and say, Eric is a very important member of UCLA administration and cannot produce the podcast anymore. It takes too much time. And just so everyone knows, Eric is, is doing very well and is now assistant vice provost of teaching and learning at UCLA. So he's still a badass, more of a badass than he was then, but, but just doesn't have time to, to do yeah, all this. At the so, time that he produced yeah. these episodes, he was finishing his PhD at UCLA. So he 
completed that and, as you say, jumped right into the old nine to five job. Yeah. Eric Wells is, of course, my first UCLA PhD, and I'm super proud of him. So it's really fitting that we would put him on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. And I hope you guys enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Eric's Guide to Ancient Egypt. So I was trying to think of what would be something good to prepare for today. And one of the things I've gotten requests for is really two things. One is people really liked some of the tales that I've done. So people wanted me to do a bit more literature. And two, people wanted me to do more things talking about the Middle Kingdom. So I thought to myself, what better thing to prepare for this week than a Middle Kingdom tale? Now, the Middle Kingdom is what we often consider to be not a forgotten gem, but a neglected gem, I'll say, in Egyptology. The Old Kingdom is the period between, or rather the Middle Kingdom is the period between the Old Kingdom, which is the Pyramid Age, and the New Kingdom, which is the Age of Empire. So when it comes to the Middle Kingdom, we don't have as many scholars focusing on it, but it really is an interesting time where there are very interesting things going on in terms of the centralization of the state, the power play between the king and new kind of local governors, in addition to some of the expansions on the borders and some of the literature that's coming about in this period. In fact, many of what we consider to be the classic Egyptian literary texts come from this period. And the one I'm going to start with today is one of the ones that is a beautiful Egyptian text called The Shipwrecked Sailor. or And the tale of The Shipwrecked Sailor is one of the first texts that most students who are learning ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs will first try their hand out on. It's a very good text grammatically. There's not a lot of difficulty in terms of reading it. So it's often one of the things where students first start off. And I don't want to give too much away, so we'll jump right into the text. A clever follower speaks, May your heart be well, my count. Look, we have reached home, and the mallet is taken, the mooring post driven in, and the prow rope has been thrown on the ground. Praises are given, and God is thanked. Every man is embracing his fellow. Our crew has come back safe, with no loss to our expedition. We've reached the very end of Wawat, and past Biga. Look, we have arrived in peace, our own land, we've reached it. So here, we have returning on the voyage a, a set of sailors, and one of the followers his name is not given, is addressing his superior, who has the, the title that we translate as Count, and it's a hereditary noble-type title. He goes on to say, Listen to me, my Count. I am free of exaggeration. Wash yourself, pour water on your hands, so you may reply when you are addressed, and speak to the king with self-possession and without stammering. A man's utterance saves him. His speech turns anger away from him. But you do as you wish. It is tiresome to speak to you. So here, we have a couple different things going on, which are quite interesting. The first is, this is what we call a, a framed narrative. And this is quite common in ancient Egyptian texts where they don't just have a story itself. They have some sort of framing structure. And in this case, it's individuals returning from an expedition. And clearly the count is 
in some sort of bad state, and his follower is trying to cheer him up, and he's trying to prepare for him to talk to the king. And he's telling him that he needs to get ready because he wants to speak to the king without stammering. And he says that a man's utterance saves him. And this is a common Egyptian notion about speech and good speech. And good speech is seen as being a hallmark of a worthy man. And it's seen as something that can help turn the odds in your favor, something that impresses the higher-ups. So here we see that something must have gone wrong on this expedition. But through good speech, if the Count prepares himself, he'll be able to turn back that blow of, of the fate and whatever happened and get the king on his side. But clearly... The follower's been trying to cheer him up for a while because he just tells him, you know what, do whatever you want. I'm getting sick of tiring. I'm, I'm getting sick and tired of speaking with you. The servant then goes on and he decides that he's going to tell this count a story that might make him feel better. And he says, I shall tell you something similar, which happened to me myself. I had gone to the mining region of the sovereign. I had gone down to the sea in a boat 120 cubits long, 40 cubits broad, in which there were 120 sailors from the choicest of Egypt. They looked at the sky, they looked at the land, and their hearts were stouter than lions. Before it came, they could foretell a gale, a storm before it existed. But a gale came up while we were at sea, before we had reached land. The wind rose and made an endless howling, and with it a swell of eight cubits. For those of you who, who don't know kind of biblical math, a cubit is about the length of your elbow to your forearm. So here they are in, 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 a, in a boat, and as we know, the boats in ancient Egypt were could be big, but they certainly weren't something that were meant for surviving storms. So this big wave comes. Only the mast broke it for me. Then the boat died. Those in it, not one of them survived. Then I was given on to an island by a wave of the sea, with my heart as my only companion. I spent three days alone. I spent the nights inside, inside a shelter of wood, and embraced the shadows. Then I stretched out my legs to learn what I could put in my mouth. So he's been shipwrecked alone. He's tired. He's depressed, but eventually he needs to eat. So after three days, he ventures outside. I found figs and grapes there and every fine vegetable. And there were sycamore figs there and also ripened ones and melons as if cultivated. Fish were there and also fowl. There was nothing which was not in it. Then I ate my fill and put aside what was too much for my arms to carry. I took a fire drill and made a fire and I made a burnt offering to the gods. So he's found plentiful food. He eats it. He even sets them aside. He makes a fire, and he makes an offering to the gods of thanks. But then I heard a noise, and I thought it was a wave of the sea, for the trees were splintering, the earth shaking. I uncovered my face and found it was a serpent coming. There were thirty cubits of him, his beard bigger than two cubits, his flesh overlaid with gold, and his eyebrows of true lapis lazuli, and he was rearing upwards. So, as we've just established, 
if we're talking about a cubit, we're, we're talking about, you know, maybe about a foot and a half or so. So here we have this huge serpent coming. And it's significant that we talk about his flesh being gold and his eyebrows being of true lapis lazuli, because that's actually the way that the gods are spoken of. Gods in ancient Egypt have golden flesh, and they have hair of true lapis lazuli. So we're not just dealing with a huge snake, we're apparently dealing with a divine snake. He opened his mouth to me while I was prostrate in front of him. He said to me, Who brought you? Who brought you, young man? Who brought you? If you delay in telling me who brought you to this island, then I will make you know yourself to be ashes turned into invisibility. You speak to me without hearing. I am in front of you and do not know myself. Then he put me in his mouth and he took me away to his dwelling place. He laid me down without harming me. I was safe with no damage done to me. He opened his mouth to me while I was prostrate in front of him. Then he said to me, Who brought you? Who brought you, young man? Who brought you to this island of the sea with water on all sides? Then I answered him, my, arm bent in, my arms bent in front of him. I said to him, It is because I was going down to the mining region on a mission of the sovereign, in a boat 120 cubits long and 40 cubits broad, in which there were 120 sailors from the choicest of Egypt. They looked at the sky, they looked at the land, and their hearts were stouter than lions. Before it came, they could foretell a gale, a storm before it existed. Each one of them, his heart was stouter, his arms stronger than his fellows. There was no fool among them, and a gale came up while we were at sea before we had reached land. The wind rose and made an endless howling, and with it a swell of eight cubits. Only the mast broke it for me. Then the boat died. Those in it, not one of them survived except me. And look, I am beside you. And here we can see this repetition, which is a great way of us seeing that this was a tale that while we're reading it today would have been performed. These would have been cues and set phrases where the storyteller would have fell into these and it would have created a rhythm and it would have been something where they would have repeated these and it would have helped them to remember the story and help to bring the audience into it. Then I was brought to this island by a wave of the sea, and he said to me, Fear not, young man, do not be pale, for you have reached me. Look, God has let you live, and has brought you to this island of the Spirit. There is nothing which is not within it, and it is full of every good thing. Look, you will spend month upon month until you have completed four months in the interior of this island. A ship will come from home, with sailors in it whom you know, and you will return home with them and die in your city. How happy is he who can tell of his experience, so that the calamity passes. I shall tell you something similar that happened on this island, where I was with my kinsmen, and with children amongst them. With my offspring and my kinsmen, we were seventy-five serpents in all. I shall not evoke the little daughter who, I'm, who, I'm, who I had wisely brought away. So here... The serpent is now going to tell a story, so we've got a, another nested story. But it's interesting because in addition to his having those divine attributes with his flesh, with his hair, we also see that he's evoking the number 
75 here, and, and here we seem to have religious connotations coming up. So he's living on this island with 75 of his kinsmen, although his daughter has been sent away. Then a star fell, and because of it they went up in flames. Now this happened when I wasn't with them. They were burnt when I wasn't among them. Then I died for them, when I found them as a single heap of corpses. If you are brave, master your heart, and you will fill your embrace with your children. Kiss your wife and see your house. This is better than anything. You will reach home and remain there amongst your kidsmen. Stretched out prostrate I was, and I touched the ground in front of him. I said to him, I shall tell your power to the sovereign. I shall cause him to comprehend your greatness. I shall have them bring you laudanum and malbathrum, terebinth and balsam, and the incense of the temple estates with which every god is content. I shall tell what has happened to me as what I have seen of your power. They will thank God for you in the city before the council of the entire land. I shall slaughter bulls for you as a burnt offering. I shall strangle fowls for you. I shall have boats brought for you, laden with all the wealth of Egypt, as is done for a God who loves mankind in a far land unknown to mankind. Then he laughed at me, at these things I had said, which were folly to his heart. He said to me, Do you have much myrrh of all existing types of incense? For I am the ruler of Punt. Myrrh is mine. That Malbathrum you speak of bringing is this island's plenty. And once it happens that you have left this place, you will never see this island again, which will have become water. So here we have a a very interesting interaction happening. So on the one hand, the serpent has told us the story about his family dying, about this calamity that occurred to him in a way similar to the sailor losing his crewman. But he's telling him that you need to have a brave heart and carry on. That if you're brave and you master your heart, you will fill your embrace with your children. And when the shipwrecked sailor offers to make all of these fine offerings to him, the serpent laughs and he says, I've got plenty of those things. But what's more, this island will become water. And this is another very interesting mythological illusion here. Because we have texts that talk about the creation of the world. And the serpents and snakes, those were seen as animals of the kind of primordial time. At the time when the Nile flood would wash away, we would have snakes and frogs And these were seen as animals associated with pre-creation. Animals that then became associated with creative powers. So, So that snake parallel there is already clear. But what you have to realize about the creation of the world in ancient Egyptian mythology is that once it was created, there was also an idea that it was going to be destroyed. The world itself is kind of an island that's created in the middle of the noon, these salty, chaotic, inert waters that exist and that creation comes into being in. 
But we have texts that tell us that that's going to end. That at some point, the Creator God is going to destroy His creation, and it's going to sink back into the noon. And no doubt, the disappearance of this island, it becoming water, is an allusion to that. So, here, the gods themselves essentially are saying that they themselves are the victims of fate, and that they too will have a time that will end. Then that boat came, as he had foretold previously. I went and I put myself up in a tall tree, and I recognized those inside of it. Then I went to report this, and I found that he knew it. Then he said to me, Farewell, farewell, young man, to your house and see your children. Spread my renown in your city. Look, this is my due from you. Then I prostrated myself, my arms bent in front of him. Then he gave me a cargo of myrrh and malbathrum, terebinth and balsam, camphor, shasek spice and ipent, tails of giraffes, a great mound of incense, elephant tusks, hounds and monkeys, apes and all good riches. Then I loaded this onto the ship, and it was then that I prostrated myself to thank God for him. Then he said to me, Look, you will arrive within two months. You will fill your embrace with your children. You will grow young again at home and be buried. Then I went down to the shore nearby this ship. Then I called to the expedition which was in this ship, and on the shore I gave praises to the Lord of this island, and those who were aboard did the same. The idea of reputation here is very interesting because we see in instruction texts the idea that the monument of a man is his name. That, yes, ancient Egypt is is associated with and no doubt fairly is obsessed with wealth and with preparing for the afterlife in material ways. But we have many texts that tell us it's really the reputation you develop in life that's going to exist past you, and on which you'll be judged. And that's no doubt what's going on here. This snake, this god of this island of riches, is wanting to be remembered. He's wanting to be praised within the city, and he says, this is what you owe me. We then sailed northwards to the residence of the sovereign, and we reached home in two months, exactly as he had said. Then I entered before the sovereign, and I presented him with this tribute from the interior of the island. Then he thanked God for me before the council of the entire land. Then I was appointed as a follower. And this is actually an Egyptian title that an individual could have. I was endowed with two hundred persons. Look at me after I have reached land and have viewed my past experience. Listen to my speech. Look, it is good to listen to me. Then he said to me, Don't act clever, my friend. Who pours water for a goose when the day dawns for its slaughter on the morrow? So the man has returned. He's gone and he's told this story to his lord, the Count, of his own act and how he had his own disastrous voyage and how he himself was suffering. But through a brave heart, he was able to come on And at the end, we see that the Count kind of reprimands him and says, 
Don't act clever, my friend. Who pours water for a goose when the day dawns for its slaughter on the morrow? Essentially, you're telling me this great story. Yeah, yeah, so what? I'm going to die tomorrow. Who cares? And as the text then concludes, so it ends from start to finish, as found in writing, a writing of the scribe with clever fingers, Ameni, son of Ameni Ya. So, there you have it, the tale of the shipwrecked sailor. A very interesting piece, and I think a very interesting piece, especially with that turn at the end. Here we've had this story which essentially talks about fate and how fate can affect mankind and it can affect the gods as well. And really, all you can do is be brave in the face of that. But that's really turned completely on its end. At the end, when here we have this count who essentially says, you're just being overly clever, none of this matters. And I think we're we're kind of left to wonder at this point, is this something where the audience would have interpreted this as a comedy? Is this something that, in many ways, turns the text into a treatise, actually focusing on the nature of fate? And is it something that can't be avoided? Are all these speeches good and fine, but they really don't amount to much at the end of the day? So I think, in a way, this tale is very interesting because it leaves the audience, I think, guessing a bit and leaving some room for interpretation. Well, I hope that you enjoyed this text. I must say it's one of my favorites, not my favorite. Um, I'll be reading that one hopefully fairly soon. Um, But this is something that I think is a great tale. It's one of the, the quintessential ancient Egyptian stories. So thank you for listening to this. Thank you also for rating the podcast if you've had a chance to do so. That's something that is good for my numbers, and it also is a way that gives me good positive feedback. Thanks for listening. Thank you to our listeners for your support, and please subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends, and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to ancientnow at substack.com. We actually do read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. Thank you to our current supporters. I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.